0: Well, the title that I gave to this sermon, you'll notice in the bulletin, was the simple and some would say rather boring title, Abraham and Lot. And of course, Genesis 13 is about Abraham and Lot. Abraham and Lot, of course, are the two main characters in this entire chapter. They engage in both a conflict and in some conflict resolution. But as I studied this chapter this week and pored over its verses a little more, I came to the conclusion that actually Genesis 13 is really about the land, the land of Canaan. It's about the land more than it is about the two characters, Abraham and Lot. It's the land of Canaan that is the central theme of this chapter the characters Abraham and Lot sort of act in supporting roles to support that main theme of land. So, for example, we note that the word land, in reference to Canaan, occurs six times in this chapter. So that's a hint that the chapter is concerned with the land. The interest of the text in this part of the Abraham story is to pose questions to the reader. Questions like, Who is it that actually owns the land of Canaan? Who will be allowed to live in the land of Canaan? And of course, for us who live in 2018 in Canada, a relevant question is, of course, how is this chapter that deals with the ancient land of Canaan important for us? And that's a question that we will work toward giving an answer to a little later this morning. This is a chapter about the land of Canaan. What we want to do is to walk through this part of the story slowly, but as an intro, and I hope you have your Bible open, as an intro, I think it's crucial for us to return just for a moment to the first official verse of Abraham's story, which is Genesis 12.1. For our purposes today, what we need to pay attention to in Genesis 12.1 is that God called Abram to go to the land that God would show Abram. And as part of that command, God also required that Abram go from his father's house, that Abram make a break with his father's house as Abram traveled over to the land. Keep that in mind. As we go to Genesis 13, the first words of chapter 13 read as follows. So Abram went up from where? From Egypt. Remember Abram's troubles in Egypt? Abram had engaged in that deceptive scheme with his wife in order to save his own skin And the end result was that Pharaoh had booted Abram and his entourage out of Egypt. So that now Abram is traveling away from Egypt as Genesis 13 opens. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now several things to notice here. First of all, notice in this verse the travel itinerary. Abram and company go from Egypt into the Negev, which is that same desert area, that arid area that Abram had traveled through on his way down to Egypt in verse 9 of chapter 12. So now at 13.1, what's Abraham doing? He's retracing his steps. He's reversing his footsteps you get the feeling that after that train wreck, that debacle in Egypt, Abram wants to go back in reverse and hit the reset button. Secondly, notice the order. Notice this carefully, the order in this verse of what is coming with Abram on his way out of Egypt. It is first Abram's wife, and then it's Abram's possessions, And in third place, with the bronze medal, it's Abram's nephew, Lot. Lot is listed here after the mention of Abram's possessions. I think Nahum Sarna is right in his commentary on Genesis when he says this, by placing Lot last in the list, after Abraham's possessions, possessions, the text hints at a degree of estrangement between Abraham and Abraham. And Lot. Now let's get to know Lot a little bit. Lot was the son of Haran, and Haran was Abram's brother, which makes Lot Abram's nephew. Later on in the narrative, Lot will father two sons by his unnamed daughters, And those two sons of Lot will be the progenitors or the predecessors of the Moabite people and the Ammonite people, two people groups that end up giving the Israelites all sorts of trouble throughout their entire history. Returning back to Genesis 12 for a moment, I wanted you to keep that in your back pocket, Genesis 12.1 we notice that right on the heels of the amazing promises that God makes to Abram in the first three verses of Genesis 12, verse 4 then comes where we have that simple, remarkable obedience of Abram that we talked about last week as he goes to the land that God had promised. But also we have in verse 4 another statement, which is the statement That Lot went with Abram. And then in verse 5 of chapter 12, we're reminded again that Lot went with Abram. I want to argue that as Abram takes Lot with him toward the land, it may be, it may be the first hint of disobedience in Abram. Why disobedience? Well, a little earlier I reminded you about 12.1 where Abram was commanded by God to make a break with his father's house. Abram's nephew Lot was technically part of that father's house that Abram was supposed to break with as he traveled over to the land. But Abram takes Lot. And by the time we reach Genesis 13.2, we've been reminded no less than three times by the narrator of Genesis that Lot went with Abram. Making a clean break from his father's house would have meant that Abram left Lot behind as he traveled to the land. But Lot is with Abram, and this spells trouble. Let's go to verse 2 of our chapter. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Remember that back at 1216, the pharaoh of Egypt had loaded up Abram with a massive package of gifts because of Sarai before Abram had been booted out of Egypt for his deception. Abram's wealth that is described in our verse is at least partly ill-gotten gain or its sour proceeds from the Egypt travesty. And sometimes, friends, wealth and possessions can really complicate your life. Amen? Amen. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. And he journeyed from the Negev, that dry desert region just north of Egypt, Abram journeyed on from there as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and I to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon or we might translate it. He proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Now notice again, Abram is retracing his steps. The place he's now at is the same place he had been at in 12.8. So it's like Abram is aware that he had failed so greatly in Egypt, and now he's going back to square one. He's going back to that same place in Canaan where earlier he had set up the altar, and he's repenting, and he's renewing his commitment to Yahweh, and he's resetting himself in the promises of Yahweh. Verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram. There it is again. Another reminder of Lot's presence with Abram. Another reminder that there is still this vestige of Abram's father's house. Lot, who is traveling with Abram, and probably he shouldn't be. Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Now, Abram had been described as a candidate for the cover of Forbes magazine in verse 2. And now Lot in verse 5 is described also as wealthy, well-to-do. And then the problem comes in verse 6. Wealth and possessions can sometimes be a problem, especially wealth and possessions that come from a trip of deception into Egypt. Abram is rich and Lot is rich, so that the land, notice that here we have our first instance of that phrase, the land, in chapter 13, in reference to the land of Canaan, where Abram and Lot are right now. The chapter ultimately is about the land, it's about the promised land. So that the land could not support both Abram and Lot dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. There was only so much vegetation on the available land for the massive cattle operations of Abraham and Lot. Grazing areas were limited. Sustainable farming was turning out to be impossible here for the two of them. Now remember back at 12:10, as we try to read this narrative very carefully. remember back at 12:10, this same land had been in the grip of famine. And remember back at 12:6, the Canaanites were mentioned as the occupants of this land. So that when God promised the land to Abram, to Abram immediately we had those obstacles to the promise of both famine and Canaanite occupation. Now here at 13.6, the land can't support two rich men with their herds. The question that the text is posing here is the question, is the land big enough? Never mind being occupied by Canaanites or in the grips of famine. Is the land big enough? Can it sustain people? Verse 7. And there was strife, note that word, strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Hey, that field above the outcropping of rock there, that's our field. Take your animals off of it or you might find one missing later tonight. We came to this place first, we didn't see any no trespassing signs, and the land was empty when we came. Strife, verbal quarrels, that's the word here, verbal quarrels between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot, and we have the very first conflict here among many conflicts that will happen in the pages of Scripture between Israel, represented by Abram and his men, And Moab and Ammon, represented by Lot and his men. Again, Lot's sons will be the fathers of the Moabites and of the Ammonites. And then notice carefully that last sentence in verse 7. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in what? The land. There it is again. The Canaanites were the people in this land who dwelt in or dwelt near the walled cities in the land, while the Parasites were those who dwelt in the open country. Bruce Waltke says this, Together, these two peoples composed the indigenous population that restricted pasturage and watering holes, making it impossible for Abram and Lot to sustain the fertility of their flocks and herds grazing together. Yes, the Canaanites and Perizzites mentioned here already reserved the best parts of the land for their herds. Hence this scrap now between Lot's men and Abram's men for the leftovers. They are all having a hard time finding adequate space and food and water for their respective herds. Now, before we proceed forward in the narrative to verse 8, notice that another question is implied to the reader in this last sentence in verse 7. The question is, who owns the land of Canaan? Well, for now, here in verse 7, we're told, that the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So it appears here that the Canaanites and Perizzites are the owners of the land. Watch what happens as we go now to verses 8 and 9. The quarreling, disputes, the claims and counterclaims amongst Abram's men and Lot's men have reached a fevered pitch. And so Abram now takes initiative and speaks to the situation. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Get that. We're family, Lot. Let's have cooler heads prevail here. We're family. Verse 9, Abram says to Lot, Is not the whole land Before you notice we have another reference to the land of Canaan is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand then I will go to the right or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, note, first of all, what's happening here. The end of verse seven implied that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were the owners of the land. But now verse 9 implies that Abram owns the land. After all, Abram feels he's in a position here to distribute a section of the land to his nephew Lot. So who owns the land? The Canaanites and Perizzites? Or is it Abram? That's a question that's being raised by the text. Let's keep going. Now what Abram does here is really quite staggering, isn't it? In Genesis twelve seven, God had promised the land to Abram's offspring. Abram had that promise from God that Abram's descendants would inherit the land so that the land was the rightful possession of Abram's. And friends, when something is a person's rightful possession, most people will cling to that something and they will fight for that something. But not Abram. Abram, who is Lot's senior, we need to understand, Abram, who is Lot's uncle, gives the choice to his junior nephew. Lot can go ahead and he can choose either to have the southern portion of the land of Canaan that was rightfully Abram's, or Lot can choose the northern portion of the land that was rightfully Abram's. Now we need to notice this very carefully. Abram, listen, he seems willing to relinquish, to surrender the very land that had been promised to him by God. Just as later in the story, Abram will be willing to relinquish his son who had been promised to him by God. Abram amazes us, doesn't he? But I think it's the promise of God that is driving Abram here. It's the promise of God that's driving him. What do I mean by that? I mean that because God promised Abram the land, And because Abraham believed that God meant what God said concerning the land, now in this matter with Lot, Abram can simply rest in the promise of God. Abram will have the land because God said that he would. And so for now, Lot can go ahead and he can choose whatever he wants. And by and by... God is going to come through on his promise to Abram. What's Abram doing? He's resting in faith. Abram is trusting God's promise of the land as he lets Lot make a choice over the land. Abram had tried to manipulate things, hadn't he? Had tried to manipulate things to his own advantage with his own smarts during that whole mess in Egypt. Maybe now he's learned a lesson. No need to manipulate matters. Rather, rest in the promises of God and renounce self-interest. Oh, there are lessons here for us. Renounce self-interest in order to promote peace between himself and Lot. Alan Ross says this. One might expect Abram to cling to the land as his rightful possession, but he offered it to Lot. The one who believed that God promised to give him the land did not have to reserve it for himself. There may be somebody here this morning who needs to hear this word from God. Are you willing to rest in the promises that God has made to you And in the meantime, give generously to others because you are resting in the sure promises of God. Well, what does Lot do with Abram's generous offer? Notice the text here. Abram had given first crack to Lot. Either the south or the north of Canaan. Go ahead and choose. What does Lot do? Lot goes with option three, which wasn't even on the table. Verse 10, Lot takes out his binoculars. Listen to the text. And Lot did what? Lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. The area that Lot is considering, as several commentators have pointed out, isn't even technically in the land of Canaan. The area he's looking at was probably just beyond the promised land. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was what? Well watered everywhere like what? Like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of what? Egypt. In the direction of Zoar. It's not by coincidence that Lot is described here in the terms of Genesis 3 and the story of Eve in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, Eve saw that the tree was good and then she took and ate from the tree. Here in Genesis 13, Lot saw that the Jordan Valley was good, and Lot chose it. And as Eve's seeing and choosing turned out to be a disaster in Genesis 3, so Lot's seeing and choosing here is going to turn out to be a disaster. The place Lot chooses is described, notice, as well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Genesis 2, verses 10 through 14 describe the Garden of Eden as well watered with four rivers so that the garden, like this area that Lot is choosing, was a fertile area. But the Garden of Eden ended up being the place of disastrous rebellion against God. And now this area that Lot is choosing will also end up in disastrous rebellion against God. This place that Lot is choosing is like the Garden of Eden. Fertile, but eventually a disaster. This place that Lot is choosing is, notice, like the land of Egypt. Why is that important? Well, because Abram had just had a disastrous trip down into Egypt. So any place that's like Eden, where humankind rebelled, and like Egypt, where Abram had just fallen into faithfulness, this can't be a good place. And the narrator of the story lets us know in no uncertain terms that here Lot is choosing poorly. As the narrator says at the end of verse 10, notice his comment, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Ominous comment, isn't it? The idea is this lush, fertile place that Lot sets his eyes on and chooses is the very place in Genesis 19 that God will consume by fire. It may look like the Garden of Eden, but it ain't. You and I, friends, can make practical, logical decisions like Lot did based on what we see. Lot was looking at the well-watered Jordan Valley, and no doubt Lot was thinking, practically he was thinking, Safety from famine, look at all that water. Provision for animals, provision for humans. We can't blame Lot altogether for his logical decision, which was based on sight, on what he saw. I think you and I might reach the same choice as Lot were we in his position. But we have to notice that there is a contrast being drawn in this part of the story, and namely it's a contrast between walking by faith in the promises of God, which Abram does as he gives first choice to Lot, walking by faith, and walking by sight, which Lot does as he lifts his eyes and chooses what he sees with no apparent awareness of God and God's plan. As believers in Jesus Christ, we walk by faith, like Abraham, and not by sight, like Lot. 2 Corinthians 5.7. Let's go forward to verse 11. Notice the language. So Lot chose for himself. Notice that. So apparently for Lot, this was all about choosing for self, right? No apparent regard for Abram and Abram's people. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed in which direction? East, ominous. Thus they separated from each other. So far in the book of Genesis, the direction east is a rather ominous direction. Adam and Eve were driven east of Eden, away from the presence of God, Cain was driven also to the east after he murdered Abel. The builders of the Tower of Babel had gone east to defy God and the building of the tower. Now Lot goes east, seemingly away from God, away from the promises of God that had been given to Abram. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. So now finally Abram is settling down after a significant time of wandering all over the place, he settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled along the cities of the valley, the cities of the valley, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, Zoar, Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. Verse 13. Now the men of Sodom We're wicked, great sinners against Yahweh, against the Lord. Wow. Talk about a politically incorrect verse. Notice how the Bible doesn't take the contemporary attitude of Anything goes as long as it makes you feel good. Holiness, shmoliness. The Bible says very clearly and explicitly that there are people and there are actions that people do and there are attitudes that people have that in the sight of Almighty God are wicked. They are wicked at the tribunal of God, which is the only tribunal that absolutely ultimately matters. Now the men of... I know this is an uncomfortable verse, but we're going to dwell on it, camp on it just for a minute. Now the men of Sodom were wicked. And notice here in the text, they're not just simply sinners. No, they are great sinners against the Lord. That is, these people were a rung below your run-of-the-mill sinner in the sight of God. Their heinous sin, says this verse, was against the Lord. God was personally offended with these people And for the people in this situation, that is a terrifying place to be. Now we know from the later parts of the Abraham story that we're going to get to in a few weeks that Sodom's sin was indeed, their sin against God was indeed of a sexual nature. But we also get a further window into the nature of Sodom's sin against God when we read Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50, where we're told that Sodom's sin was also, listen, pride and haughtiness, which the Lord hates, and a refusal to help the poor and the needy. For our purposes in Genesis 13... Suffice it to say for now that Lot goes away from Abram and he settles somewhere near wicked Sodom. This can't be good. Verse 14. We go from verse 13, that dark, dreary verse, to verse 14. Yahweh said to Abram Notice this, it's like a light goes on. Now the Lord speaks. Lot is gone away. Abram is officially separated, finally, from his father's house, because Lot has departed. Abram is in the land, and Yahweh now speaks to Abram. Abram gets a word from God now, and I'm sure that separating from Lot in the way that it it had happened... Was a rather painful thing for Abram. Now, as John Calvin says, God comes, I love this, with the medicine of his word to alleviate Abram's pain. There's nothing like God's word when you're feeling down and feeling sad. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him Listen to the Lord and his grace and his goodness. The Lord could have said, you're done, Abram. I I don't like what you did in Egypt. (laughs) That's not what he says. The Lord says, lift up your eyes and look. Now this is significant because in verse 10, Lot had decided all by himself to lift up his eyes and look at the Jordan Valley. Now God comes to Abram and God tells Abraham to do a little eye lifting of his own. Lift up your eyes, Abram. Look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward in every direction for all the what? Land. There it is again. This chapter is about the land. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Now we asked the question earlier, who owns the land? Was it the Canaanites and the Perizzites? Was it Abram? Now we get the definitive answer. God owns the land. God created the land. God says, I will give the land to you, Abram, and to your offspring. The land was God's to give. Abram had trusted God's promise of land when Abram gave Lot first choice. Now God affirms the promise of land once again. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now, Abram's wife, Sarai, is still barren. Last we checked. But here God promises multitudes of offspring for Abram, and God ties the promise of offspring, notice, to the promise of land. Abram's offspring will be like the dust of the earth. God says, verse 17, Arise, walk through the length and breadth of what? The land, the land is the main theme, for I will give it to you. God owns the land. The land is God's to give. What God wanted Abram to do now was to take a little tour of faith. Right now, the Canaanites and the Perizzites occupied the land, but God wanted Abram to tour through the land and believe the promise of God Concerning the land. And as Abram walked through the land, I imagine him as he's walking along, he's kicking up a little dust as he walks. He's looking at the dust in the air, looking at the dust on his sandals and on the ground, and he's thinking of God's promise that Abram's offspring would be like the dust of the earth. This tour that God wanted Abram to take would serve to crystallize, wouldn't it? To crystallize into Abram's soul the promise of land and descendants. And as Bruce Waltke points out here, when ancient kings wanted to assert their right to rule a territory, they would symbolically trace out that territory, walk the boundaries of the land. That's exactly what Abram's doing here. His walkabout in the land, says Waltke, symbolizes his legal acquisition of the land. Verse 18, last verse of the chapter. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to Yahweh. Beginning of the chapter, Abram goes back to Bethel, to the altar that he had built before and worships. Now at the close of the chapter, Abram builds another altar to Yahweh for worship. So the chapter is bookended, in a sense, with Abram's devotion to God and his worship of God. Now we set off the top that really Genesis 13 is ultimately about the land. The chapter asks and answers the question, who owns the promised land? And the answer is, God does. The chapter also deals with the question of who will settle in the land. Will it be Abram? Will it be Lot? Will it be both? And the answer is, of course, it'll be Abram and his offspring. God gives the land to Abram and makes sure that Abram settles in the land. But now one of the things that Genesis 12 and 13 have shown us, and I hope we've seen it, is that Abram, listen, Abram doesn't come by the land very easily. Famine had driven him out of the land. The Canaanites are the occupants of the land. Now there's this dispute in chapter 13 over the land between Abram and Lot. The land is not easily taken. And what's really interesting and somewhat sad is that by the time Abraham dies, all he owns in the land is a small burial plot near Hebron. And then by the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham's offspring, Jacob and family, are driven out of the land because of another famine. The land is not easily taken. In fact, it isn't until the time of Joshua, many centuries later, that Israel will make an organized push to take the land of Canaan. And even then, they don't have 100% success. The land is not easily taken. With the arrival of King David, finally the last enemies in the land are conquered. And for the first time, the land is taken and it is possessed fully By Israel. But of course, the story doesn't end there, does it? Centuries after David, the people dwelling in the land are exiled out of the land because of their covenant disobedience. As it had been predicted way back in Deuteronomy 28, where curses for covenant disobedience had included things like being plucked off the land, going into captivity, being brought to another nation, so it happened to Israel. They were exiled out of the land for their covenant disobedience, first to Assyria, later to Babylon. The land was not easily taken in the first place, and staying in the land proved very difficult. And from the time of the Babylonian captivity up to the New Testament, the land promised to Israel was controlled by foreigners, wasn't it? first by Babylon who controlled the land, then it was Persia, then it was the Greeks, and finally it was the Romans in the moment when Jesus Christ was born. So that for almost six centuries prior to the birth of Jesus, the promised land had been controlled by foreign nations. And the question as the New Testament opens is, will Jesus take the land back for Israel. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about his relationship to Genesis 13. In Genesis 13, we saw Abram not grasping at his rights as he relinquished self-interest and gave first choice to Lot. The greater than Abraham, Abraham, Jesus Christ, did not grasp at his rights either. When as God in heaven, he did what? He emptied himself and took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Philippians 2.6 says that although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In Genesis 13, Lot is given first choice in the matter of the land, and Lot chooses foolishly. He chooses out of self-interest. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus must make a choice. The devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil tells Jesus that it all can be his if Jesus will just bow down and worship The devil. In that moment, Jesus, we need to understand, is better than Lot. He's wiser than Lot. Jesus is miles supreme over Lot because Jesus makes the right choice, the wise choice, the choice that denies himself and honors another. Jesus honors the father and the father's plan as he says to the devil, and I love these words, Be gone, Satan! For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, the first priority of Jesus Christ was the plan of God and following through on that plan, which included the cross as the way in which Jesus would inherit the kingdoms of the world. The earth is not easily taken. Jesus had to go to the cross in order to secure his inheritance of the kingdoms of the earth. He had to die in order to be exalted by the Father to the place where Jesus now has been given all authority, not just over Canaan, but over the entire earth. What we see as we turn the last pages of the Old Testament into the New Testament is that questions concerning the land of Canaan, we need to see this, questions concerning the land of Canaan, owning the land of Canaan, possession of the land of Canaan, these questions as the New Testament opens recede and they fade away as the New Testament flowers out and gets underway. There were some, oh yes, there were some, in the days of the Roman occupation of the land when Jesus was born, there were some who still had Possession of the promised land on their minds. We see this in a place like Acts 1-6 where they ask Jesus if Jesus will restore the kingdom to Israel. But we need to notice the response of Jesus. All the earth belongs to Jesus. Now this is where it gets practical for the church. In Acts 1-8, Jesus tells them that there's a new priority. There's a new priority, church. The Holy Land has served its purpose. There's a new priority. It's not possession and ownership of a tract of land called Canaan anymore. It's rather that the gospel witness needs to fan out, as Jesus says, and spread to the ends of the earth. Our focus as Christian people must be this, to be witnesses for Jesus to the ends of the earth. The only pieces of real estate that should interest us now are the whole earth for our witness and the new heavens and new earth that are coming that we are inviting people to join us for. We desire a better country, says the writer of Hebrews, a heavenly one. We desire the city that God is preparing for us and we want as many people as possible to be saved and join us in God's eternity. Let's pray the vision of Genesis 13 through the lens of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for your revelation. We thank you for your progressive revelation that starts chapter 1 in the Old Testament and ends at the final chapter at the end of Revelation and how we can't understand Genesis 13 without understanding the New Testament and we can't understand the New Testament without understanding and knowing the Old Testament. We thank you that you have supremely put this revelation together for our benefit, for our direction for our purpose as human beings thank you for revealing to us your son Jesus Christ and his saving blood and I pray today that if someone here in the sound of my voice does not know Jesus that Holy Spirit you would so work on their heart that they would come to know you and trust you that they would join other believers in the new heavens and new earth that are coming we praise you and thank you for your work in the world and in this church Amen.